The following podcast was recorded before life changed so dramatically to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. While the discussion doesn't address the topic specifically, we still wanted to share what we think is a valuable conversation around the Sunday readings. We're making a plan to record future podcasts even when we can't be in the studio together. Peace and love be with you during this time of challenge. God's love is ever around us. Welcome to What Does This Mean? A discussion of the Bible texts that are assigned in many Christian churches, including the Lutheran Church, for this upcoming Sunday. Today, we are going to tell one great story that will open your eyes. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. And I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. We are the pastors at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And this is our weekly chance to think ahead about the readings that are coming up so that we can think about them a little bit and hopefully you too can be prepared to hear them in a new way on Sunday. We are really in the middle of the season of Lent, our time, 40 days of preparing for Easter. Sometimes we think of it this as our time in the wilderness. And interestingly, we, we've we mentioned this before, but we have the lectionary is our pattern of readings that we use. And there are three cycles, cycle A, B, C, B, and C. And in the cycle that we're in this year, which is kind of going through Matthew most of the year, shifts its priorities in Lent, and we read a bunch of John. And when I say a bunch of John, I mean a A lot lot of John. Long stories. Long stories, which are hard to break into parts and read over several weeks. And they're such great pivotal stories. I think the people who put the lectionary together probably just said, you know, They can stand to hear a long story every now and then. And since we're in the wilderness, why not do it? Why not? (laughs) We got 40 years anyway. We got lots of time to hang out. So, what we're going to do today is really just look at the gospel text and break it down into some parts. And uh, we're not even going to address the other two readings for the for the day. But as has been our pattern, we are welcoming special guests. And today we are welcoming back our director of youth and family formation, Katie LeClaire. We have had bags of mail begging us to bring her back to the show. Our first Popular repeat demand. guest. Yes. 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 She's that good. Wow, first She's one? that you good. Are the fir- you are the first. You were the first one. And it's not just because I passed you in the hall yesterday and we needed oh, a guest. How many people did you ask before I said yes? No, it you, doesn't matter. Was, You're here. Oh. That's right. You are first in our first in our hearts. What kind of things are you working on these days? 
This is the time when we are finalizing our summer trips. One of our trips to Denver, we'll be spending a night on the way there and back. So I'm making sure we have the lodging we need as it's a two-day drive out and making sure we have floors to sleep on with our awesome blow-up air mattresses and... What kind of things will you do in Denver on this trip? This trip is primarily focused on people facing um, housing crisis. There's a lot of people experiencing homelessness there. So we'll be doing food service and home rehab. Do we have one or two trips this summer? Well, there's New York City. Yeah. Tell us about that. That one is for our high schoolers. That is going to be working with the Seafarers International House. And Mm. they are a ministry to. Uh, asylees, um, people seeking refuge off of cargo ships. So we'll be learning about the asylum process and how it has changed in the last decade. And there we'll be doing a ton of food service, mostly in the morning and early afternoon. And then we do our New York tourist things in the evening. But we'll get to go to the a prayer walk to the 9-11 memorial and to the Staten Island Ferry. Well, let's jump into the gospel text. This is the ninth chapter of John, and it's verses 1 through 41. But don't pay attention to that number. It's the entire chapter. It's the entire chapter. Just immerse yourself in the story. This is what I always think about more lengthy Bible readings. It's just to give yourself over to them. Let them, let the words just wash over you and let them connect you to the spirit that's under these stories, which I think is the point of reading them anyway. So we're going to break this first part into 12 verses. Pastor Lois, would you start telling the story? John 9. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. I have a few, uh, like, set up questions, first of all, of how you interpret a a passage like this. And so since we haven't read the whole thing yet, this is a good way to kind of get into it. My first observation is true grace. Here is this man did not ask for a miracle, didn't ask for help. Um, Jesus comes along. It says he was just walking along and 
the disciples are trying to trap him. Maybe that's my interpretation with a question. Why is this man blind? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus says, neither one of them. And then he goes into the strange, and this is what I kind of wanted to ask you about in verses three to five. Don't ask about that. That's the hard part. That's the hard part? Yeah. <laughs> Skip that part. Jesus starts to say, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day and night is coming when no one can work. What is it that? Sounds like a riddle. So he kind of, he, Jesus' pattern is usually to answer a riddle with a riddle. Mm -hmm. But then he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So he totally skips their question. And I wonder how you, when you're reading a passage like this in scripture, do you go for the concrete episode? Here's this guy blind, mud, spit, etc., healed, neighbors. What do you do with these spiritual concepts? Was this a physical healing or was it a spiritual thing or is it a little bit of both? Or how do you think John wanted us to read this? I would say just first off the top of my head, both that the way John works is he uses the concrete to point to a deeper truth. And he sees an opportunity in this man. In fact, it's kind of an interesting thing. He's just walking by that Jesus is able to see the possibility of light and God's presence emerging anywhere. And so he kind of chooses, okay, we can do it right here. I'll, I'll, I'm going to show you what this is all about. In a way, he gives us the meaning before we see it, but it's so kind of odd. You need the concrete thing. It almost feels like we need the children's sermon version <laughs> of this. Yeah. That's really yeah. give us, give us a little thing we can look at to understand this mystery of light and darkness and where God is present and when God is present and which we always get confused about. Well, and then the whole, he, he uses a little mud and the, the just wild scene of spitting into the mud and putting that in the man's eyes. Why? Sometimes Jesus heals people by saying you are healed. Sometimes just by just, the word. Or their touch or something. But here, this odd thing about the mud in the man's eyes and all the sense of how that blinds us. You know, what what's the mud over our eyes that keeps us from seeing the light of God or the love of God we have to wash? It's just great, but so confusing. I never thought about that, that we're talking about his sight, but he covers his eyes with the with the mud. mud. He actually put something in front of. One thing we should probably note about this story is that the whole metaphor of blindness and seeing can be problematic and difficult for some people. And there's a whole history of in the Christian church of equating blindness and sin, which you even kind of see in this story. And I think we've learned that people um, who are visually impaired, many of them don't see blindness as something negative, but many talk about it even as a way of developing their other senses and that, in fact, they, quote unquote, see in some deeper and better ways than some of us with sight. And right off the bat, the question is, did this man sin or was it his parents? And in that time, the understanding was if someone was ill or was blind or deaf or whatever, that there must have been some sin that caused that. And there was even a sense that maybe it was the parents who sinned and then their offspring are the ones who deal with the results of that. And we obviously understand today that's not how illnesses work. 
So how do we push the metaphor in a different way to talk about blindness being spiritually short-sighted or something? All of those have baggage of acting as if blind is less than instead of saying differently abled, it really comes across as a disability. And really, there's some dissing going on in a lot of the way the text can be interpreted. Well, I've heard people say, we shouldn't sing Amazing Grace. That yeah, the, right? I was, uh, I once was blind, but now I see really equating blindness as being outside of grace and apart from the body of Christ. And um, that metaphor is winds its way through many of our poetic and music traditions. And I think it is something for us to struggle with and to think about. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back to the next part of the story. Welcome back. The second part of the reading today is, again, chapter 9, verses 13 through 23. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. All right, so John didn't lead with the uh, the kicker part of this whole story is this is a Sabbath day, and Jesus did kind of walk them into the trap they were trying to lay out for him. So here is... Christ working on the Sabbath. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I maybe my theological scholars here will know. Did he involve a co-conspirator in his crime of working on the Sabbath? Because he made, he made, he asked, he told the guy to go wash. So I wonder if now he's got two people working on the Sabbath to really spoil the whole thing. I kind of imagined this blind person I, I believe if he had mud on his eyes, 
he might have been unclean now, pushing his way through the crowd going, I need help to obey this. Now that he's calling him a prophet more than a man, um, can someone help me get to the pool and involve? I just, I just kind of imagined this huge conspiracy. Now all of these people are making choices. Do we work? Do we help on the Sabbath? Um, but in order to kind of break that open a little bit, I wonder if you could explain some of what you know about how people would have been observing the Sabbath and what they might have been doing on this particular day and why it was such a big deal to the religious leaders. Why weren't they celebrating? Why weren't the neighbors automatically having a big party? This is a huge deal. This man is healed. And instead, they're divided and asking questions. What was the big concern? And I don't want to gloss over that because some people might not have ever considered that. So the Sabbath was given by Moses as one of the Ten Commandments. And the, there are a couple different explanations for why it exists. My favorite one, I think, is the one from Deuteronomy. It's in both Deuteronomy and Exodus, right? Mm -hmm. And the Deuteronomy version of it says um, – you should rest on the Sabbath so that your slaves can get a day of rest. It's not that you, Katie, need to rest. It's that all the people that you have working for you, even your animals, they need a break. And so you need to rest on the Sabbath. And that way, all your servants, even your livestock, will get a break at least one day a week. I've always really – so it's actually kind of a social justice thing. Well, and I think it's also important to point out that after the commandment, it set into motion generations-long discussion about what does this actually mean for us? What does it mean to stop working? Um, when can we? When can't we? People had different ideas about that. They drew the lines in different places. And this was – in the first century, particularly a time where there were great rabbinical debates about what it meant to actually keep the Sabbath. Jesus kind of just enters into that whole argument as a good rabbi, identifying, I think, in maybe this one and certainly other healing stories, he's pointing out the deeper reasons for the Sabbath, which are about restoration and healing um, and not just a legalistic interpretation of this is work and that's not work. So you stop doing this and you you make sure you you do this. But I also love the image of wrestling. We talked about this with last week's uh, readings too. There's just so much arguing going on. Um, the man, you know, the parents are kind of even afraid to stick up for their son who now can see. It's like, well, uh, you can ask him, I think, you know, I don't, uh, yeah, right. I do know it's my son, but all of this, like, I'm not sure who, whom to trust. I, I disagree. I'm not really sure I want to interpret this. I'm not sure whom I should point to to say, I think this is the guy who did it. That seems very threatening. All this scared and wrestling. Well, let's, I want to hear what's going to happen. So let's take a little break and we'll come back with the next part of the story.
So we're back for the next part of chapter nine of John's gospel. Uh, This section goes from 24 to 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here's an astounding thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and you're trying to teach us? And they drove him out. So the thing they feared, the parents feared here, happens to the man. And I don't know where he went, because before it said after he washed, he got to go home. He went home. But now he's, he's cast out. And the really bizarre thing here to me that really stood out to me is the... The bigger, it's almost a miracle that they can't accept that Jesus was from God and that that Jesus did this. It's almost more of a miracle than him being able to see himself because it's so plain and it's so obvious. My question for you in this section is, how would you explain this miracle? I work with teenagers, so I'm trying to think of the sinner language. We know this man is a sinner. I don't know if he's a sinner. Is this really about Jesus? trying to reveal the sin of the religious leaders and also kind of to tie this together with the beginning part where Jesus said, oh, this was all just a setup so that you could see the power of God. Does We should maybe hit that. What do you, how do you interpret, does God make bad things happen just so that God's glory can be revealed? I don't believe that God makes bad things happen so that miracles can happen in response Um, And that's why I struggle with that first part. Why is he saying it that way? What's interesting to me about your question is it feels as if um, the Jesus is arguing with these people that think things have to happen according to this religious plan. And what we've taught before should be held in place. You shouldn't do this on the Sabbath. You shouldn't really heal this way. God, it shouldn't really be revealed this way. And this person on the outside is saying, hey, I don't know all that. All I know is I used to not be able to see and now I can see something. So I think of young people who say, I don't know all that right. catechism stuff. I don't know really what you're trying to describe at church or what's happening in the liturgy. I just can tell you this. I used to feel like I was an outsider and these people included me. Or I used to feel like uh, none of this mattered and now I feel like something matters to me. I used to be lonely and now I feel like I have a community. Something. And we poo-poo it. It's like, uh, oh no, what we're doing here is this 
these rules. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of go through these steps. This is what it means to be confirmed. And, pe- you know, young people might be saying, I, what, I'll deal with, you know, confirmation. What I'm saying is I feel included now and I used to not. The modern examples of, of this is that people who are convinced they know deep in their bones that God is a God of love and but they've been told something otherwise and they just say no I I I can't tell you why I know it but I know what you're saying isn't right I know that God is a God of love that's the bottom line we should probably finish the story let's take a another quick little break and then we'll come back and bring it home Welcome back. We're going to continue our story in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. In this last section, this is the most personal part of the story. And I think it's just this, I just try to imagine this beautiful one-on-one with Jesus and this newly healed man that I can't imagine. I'm just trying to put myself the first time you ever saw shapes and colors and the things that you're used to touching now have, you know, you can imagine what they've been. And Jesus is really shining a, a light on all of the meta, the metaphysical and the physical. And when he said in the beginning of the chapter, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. The light reveals. And in this story, Jesus has revealed so much. And so for the, the last section, I'm wondering if you could, if anybody has a little bit more of a personal time. Because I, when I'm working with teens, I like to say, we've talked about like the theology and the historical parts of this, but does anyone have a personal story of when the light was revealing something that was miraculous in your life, whether it be a healing that's very miraculous and big, or a time when there was light shown on something and um, you felt the grace and the presence of God there in more of a personal way. We talk about the community experiencing Christ together in, in public worship. Is there ever a one-on-one time where you felt like you experienced that? 
The first story that comes to my mind is really from confirmation and growing up as a gay kid who at age 13 or whatever, whatever was convinced that if people knew who I was, I would be driven out. I mean, like this guy in the story, if the pastor who was laying his hands on my head knew this truth, I'd be, I'd be out. But somehow in the midst of all of those messages that I had internalized, we communed, we had our first communion after confirmation. So I'm having this thought about myself and then we, we kneel at the communion rail and the pastor says the body of Christ given for you. And that's still, I mm-hmm. still get a little choked up about that because somehow for some mysterious, miraculous reason, I heard and knew that the for you was more true than what I mm. believe the pastor or the church would do. And for me, that's like my one of my personal healing stories where I feel like God the the mud dropped out of my eyes and my heart held on to that even though i mean i still was not at the place where i accepted that that was a long journey but i think what propelled me on the journey was that experience of communion that sounds so church nerdy hmm. but it's wow. so true in That's my really life powerful but just that sense of saying that you heard jesus words to you as more true than the the lies that the culture had taught you about you're not worthy and somehow that that um fear of if people really knew who i really was they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to confirm me or receive me you heard the truth of jesus love for you as more fundamental well and it's so parallel to this story too Mm -hmm. that there's a law that says you know the bible says this 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 and this Mm -hmm. and um and you there are people or there were people, there still are people trying to enforce that law. And you have this encounter with Jesus who says, yeah, the law be damned. Here's this body of Christ for you. What trumps the law is Jesus's words to you, yeah. which is what is happening in the yeah, story. Right, mm-hmm. right, yep. right. Can I turn the question around to you, Katie? Mm. Like, what would you tell as one of your stories? I hadn't thought about it, but when you were telling that story, when I arrived in college at the University of Wisconsin at Whitewater, I was a very bitter, angry person. I did not want to be there. I had thought I was supposed to go to Bible college, and my parents said no. There were only two colleges left with admission, and River Falls was one. I, I'm from Wisconsin. They had no housing, and so Whitewater was. It was like this fluke. And I was mad, and I was pretty sure that maybe I wasn't disobeying God, but this was messed up. This wasn't supposed to happen. And freshmen move in first, so it was freshman welcome week. And I had an upperclassman roommate, so I was there by myself, which as an introvert, totally needed. And that was its own miracle. Thank you, Jesus. A knock on my door. And it was this girl named Maddie Waters. I still keep in touch with her. 
um, says, I'm from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We're having a game night in the basement tonight. Do you want to come down and just see what we're all about? Interdenominational group, there were Catholics and Methodists and Presbyterians, and I was a Pentecostal. And it was the best thing that could have possibly happened to me. But at the time, like I'm looking at the scripture and it says, you know, do you believe in the in the Son of Man? It was a time where I wasn't doubting God necessarily, but I was doubting that there was a path for me and there was a community for me to belong in. And it was so, it was, it was a new birth for me. And just being in an ecumenical group was so important to me to kind of branch out of more of a fundamentalist mindset and see these people worshiping Jesus, all different religious backgrounds. Definitely felt in that moment at that invitation with Maddie's door knock and going down and playing games and getting involved in the community. It was transform my life, definitely. And I know God was a part of that. That's a beautiful way maybe to Mm -hmm. end our discussion today that all of us probably have a story of something that proved to be miraculous for us, even though we wouldn't count it as a miracle story Mm -hmm. like the Bible, but it, it really is. We're so glad that you've listened today. And Katie, we're really glad that you came and spoke with us again. It was great to have you here. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. We are interested in what all of you think. So if you have comments or questions, email us at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. Thank you to Paul D'Amico Carper for providing the music for us. And once again, to Marshall Saunders of Minnesota Podcasting for producing this podcast for us. We're so grateful. Join us on Sunday mornings at 8.15 and 10.45 for worship, 9.30 for education. And during these days of Lent, uh, we also gather on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. for an evening prayer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Know that God is with you, God loves you, and God will open your eyes. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting. And they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.